Hello, 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 hello. Happy Friday. It is Friday evening. I saw Mr. Prudentialist's tweet indicating that it's Friday evening. How are you guys doing? It's good to see you. Today it is just me. Cooper has family business to attend to. How dare he? Um, I decided to let him have the evening off and uh, tell him to go spend some time with family. <clears throat> so it'll just be me here uh, today. And this is going to be a shorter stream than usual because I've got an interview here in about an hour. Um, real quick, I want you guys to go follow this guy. He's the one I'm going to be talking to tonight. It's not live. It'll be uh, pre-recorded, and I'll let you guys know as soon as it drops. But share the screen here. This is the guy, Mr. Sue. Sue, uh, P-S-E-U, kind of like pseudonymous. Very interesting guy. He reached out to me after uh, one of our most, most recent episodes and introduced me to a very interesting theory that he's been working on along with some other people about s sort of the dynamic we've been describing with the, the PayPal mafia, um, which is something that we're seeing largely within the Silicon Valley sort of community. Um, this is within the financial sector, within uh, – monetary policy through the fed and it'll probably be if you if you guys are having a hard time with the paypal mafia idea then this idea might challenge you guys even more but it's very interesting uh essentially uh there are i, I suppose you'd say influences within the u.s monetary establishment who are more or less aligned on a lot of points with the paypal mafia um not i'm not saying there's an explicit smoky room uh coordination going on but just some of the same dynamics uh, that are playing out with within the venture capital uh, general tech sector. A lot of those are are playing out in similar ways within the uh, monetary policy institutions, um, at least according to to our, my good buddy Phil here. So uh, go follow him at Mr. Sue. That's for those who are not looking at the screen. That's at M R P S E U, and subscribe to his Substack. It's Q P O L Substack.com. QPOL stands for Quiet Parts Out Loud. He's saying the Quiet Parts Out Loud. Uh, I have gone and, and um, mobbed my way through a bunch of his most recent Substack uh, posts, and they're very good. He's he makes a very good case. He's a he's a compelling writer, and uh, a lot of this is stuff that I'm not. I don't know. It's not it's not my forte. Uh, financial policy and and uh, monetary goings on. You know, I'm 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 kind of retarded. So. I, I know just enough to get myself in trouble. I'm smarter than the average bear, but I'm no expert. So I'm very interested to talk to him and kind of compare compare notes tonight. Uh, so that's uh, I'll be doing that here after I finish reading you guys a couple of things that I wanted to go through today. Uh, also, next week, I will be uh, on uh, Semiagog. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Semiagog, but uh, he's another one of our uh, our dissident right YouTubers, uh, very, very smart guy, very interesting guy. He reached out and said he wanted to have a conversation about PayPal mafia and specifically with an emphasis on foreign policy and geopolitics. So, uh, that's what we're going to be digging into. That'll be on Wednesday of this next week. And then on March 11, I will be going on academic agent to discuss the same, the same subject, PayPal mafia. This has apparently become my thing. I'm the PayPal mafia guy. Um, so yeah, go follow Phil and then look out for those interviews coming down the pike. We'll have some other, got some other people coming on the show here as well. Um, so got a lot of stuff out there. Um, I have two things that I want to read you guys today and I'm going to, I don't know how long it's going to take me to read them. So I'm going to kind of blow through this, uh, as fast as I can. 
I'm going to try to address a couple of points, but I've been, I've been wanting to do this stream for a couple of days now. I've been really busy and, um, I got myself an hour here, so I'm going to try to squeeze this in with this whole PayPal mafia thing. I want to clarify one point. I think I've kind of addressed it here and I, I tweeted about it, but, uh, I had a couple of different people who have reached out to me and said some variation of, uh, so who, who are you saying we need to get behind who, like what kind of. I, I don't know, in like in almost like democratic terms, kind of like who do we need to support? Who do we need to be championing? And I'm not saying that you need to support or champion anyone, really. I don't necessarily think that the dynamics that I'm observing are um, indicators that, oh, we've got friends in high places. Uh, these these are our guys. They're, you know, uh, crypto fascists who have embedded themselves and they're, you know, Manchurian candidates just waiting to be activated. I'm not indicating that. What I'm what I'm trying to communicate to you guys is what I'm seeing. What I'm seeing, what's happening, and based on what I'm observing, there's implications we can take away for for what we should do, how we should react to it. But ultimately, those are up to you. How you want to react to the information, what you want to do with it, that's completely up to you. I'm not um, I'm not engaged in some kind of campaign to get you guys to throw your support behind anybody. Because honestly, I think I, I've, I've toyed with this a little bit, like how much of this should I be talking about out loud? And, um, you know, to what extent is it better off if these guys just get to keep doing what they're doing? They don't need me. They don't need us, really. There may come a time where it's useful for to have an idea of what they're doing. Um, but I think that, that where that might become relevant has more to do with just staying out of the way. Um, not counter signaling them. There's nothing to be had with counter signaling them or trying to purity test them. My point is not that we have our guys in positions of power. I think that they're much closer to being our guys than the existing regime apparatchiks. And I think it's very clear that they are absolutely not of a piece with the regime uh, ideologically. Some of them are ideologically motivated. Some of them aren't. But uh, they do hold as preeminent values certain things that would be very useful to us. It would be very useful to us to have um, people who hold these particular values in a position where they can do something about it. Um, but in either case, if these guys are all a bunch of transhumanist weirdos, which I think a lot of them are transhumanist weirdos, but if they are, okay, great, fine. I, like, I'm not, again, I'm not saying that um, you need to support them or you need to, to, to push them into power because I don't think they need us to support them or push them into power. And if they wind up doing something, doing things, or, or you know, if they, they're going to try to pin you down and, and, and put a Neuralink in your head or something like that, okay, sure, whatever. Again, I'm saying, I'm describing what's happening. I'm saying these guys are going to take power. On a long enough timeline, I don't know how long it's going to take, but we're watching the rise of a counter-elite that's going to substantively change the shape of the regime. And since I began talking about this, to me, it was just kind of like a passing curiosity. It was just an interest that I uh, kind of came across this and started talking about it, did a couple episodes. But then people just kept reaching out to me and saying, hey, did you see this? Oh, here's another thing. Have you heard about this? Did you see so-and-so said su such and such? Uh, or, or just saying, Hey, you know, what is this you're talking about? I want to know more. Tell me more. What about this thing? Can you, can you address this thing? So people keep asking me about it. So I'm like, all right, well, if the people want it, I'm a man of the people. I will give you what you want. Um, but yeah, so with that, with that context here, I want to describe to you, uh, a new thing that I'm 
encountering now. And I mean, hopefully we'll have a little bit of time to talk about the implications of it. I may not be able to help myself. I may just have to just get into it, but, um, yeah, let's, let's, let's get into this. So I've, I have two pieces I want to read you and I want to show you kind of how I came to those. I'll just basically take you down, take you guys down the same train of thought that I went down to get there. What's up everybody in the chat. It's good to see you. Two bit podcast is here. My boy, Jason, <clears throat> Uh, Sanji says an orthodox view of politics can be difficult to understand. Yeah, that, that, that actually is a very interesting thing. That's kind of what was the, the, the prerequisite or, or the, the prequel to me beginning to look at these things in this way. And I actually, I think if I hadn't taken on that orthodox view of politics, I probably would not have been in the frame of mind to actually notice what's happening. Essentially the, the orthodox view of politics is, is, uh, it, it's very pragmatic. It's just kind of like there's going to be some kind of government system. This is necessary. This is inevitable. And uh, attempting to fight it actually makes you an agent of chaos, uh, a de destabilization uh, influence. So I'm just trying to see what's happening. I just want to know what's happening so I can know how to move. I can know I can kind of try to predict the future to some degree. And at the same time, I'm also looking for opportunities. I'm looking for uh, moves to make. And one of the, the prerequisites for finding a move to make is looking for a move to make. And one of the prerequisites for looking for the move to make is recognizing that there could be a move to make. In other words, you have to be able to look into the future. You have to believe that there's going to be a future. Believe that there's going to be a future in which it's worth making moves to accomplish things. There's a big uh, doomer pill thing going on right now. I think it's it really began under Trump. The extremely online left began speaking and thinking and operating in very apocalyptic terms, while the the uh, uh, the right wing was joyful and happy and optimistic and enjoying the Trump era. But then post-2020, it's kind of like that doomer pill has infected the right. Now, there it, it's yeah, I, I log on. I did a long tweet about this, and maybe we'll talk about this on our next show. But, um, you know, I log on, and it's like everybody's trying to outdo themselves in the the uh, forecasting of woe. Everyone is is trying to no. I'm the one who is the most pessimistic about the future. No, I'm the one who's pointing out just how bad it is. Nobody else appreciates just how bad it is and just how bad it's going to get. And this is even among people who I like and respect and agree with. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to see this just relentless negativity and pessimism. And what that's doing is it's creating paralysis. It's a, a, uh, it's freezing people up. Everyone's waiting for this big event. Everyone's waiting for the next transformative thing. That's going to drastically change the playing field over the course of days. And I don't think something like that's coming. I don't think that we're going to get that big event. If we do, I think that the the sort of big event that we're going to get is much more likely to be a consequence of incompetence than it is malevolence. Of course, the malevolence informs the incompetence. Go read Bioleninism by Spandrel. But my bigger concern is the incompetence and having some sort of a natural disaster or um, some kind of catastrophic economic uh, circumstance where things spin out of people's control and our biggest issue is going to be that there's no adults at the helm. Nobody's running the ship. Everything is just everyone, every man for himself with the just in time supply chains. 
Oh, we've seen already that the slightest little blip can just knock things completely haywire. And when something like that happens, we're like a week away from cannibalism. That's my concern. Those would be the types of sudden abrupt changes that we might get. But otherwise, it seemed very clear. I, I Personally, my personal opinion on this, you can disagree, feel free to disagree, I don't care. My personal opinion is we're actually going to be surprised at how boring things are. I think things are going to be very interesting. I think 2024 is going to be very interesting. But I think people who are expecting some kind of catastrophic apocalypse are going to be uh, let down by just how sort of ordinary things continue to be. Things are going to continue getting worse. And there's also going to be things that are continuing to get a lot better. And we're not going to have a big tipping point. We're not going to have a, a sudden acceleration point. I don't see that happening. Even, but even if something like that did happen, then the being being uh, predicting that something like that is going to happen isn't going to do anything for you unless you're preparing for it. If you're actively prepared and like ensuring that you could live off grid and that you have somewhere to escape to, and you've got all your ducks in a row, and you're trying to encourage everybody else to get all their ducks in a row, hey, great, I like I respect I respect your hustle. But that's not what a lot of this is. A lot of this is everybody just trying to outdo themselves and being the one who predicts the actual thing that happens. And I just don't think there's any utility in that, especially when the effect of it is that it's very demoralizing. It's demoralizing people into paralysis. You know, everything is just so bad. There's nothing we can do. All we need to do is just sit here and wait for the tidal wave to hit us. But if there's no tidal wave coming, then all you've done is just ensured that you're behind the curve at whatever point we start heading on the way back up again. Because we're going to head on the way back up again eventually, at some point. Is that going to be in a year? I don't know. Is it going to be in 10 years? I don't know. 50 years. I think it's probably somewhere between 1 and 10. There's probably going to be rough stuff between now and then. But if you want to survive, if you want to catch that, that, that wave as it heads on up again, you got to be positioning yourself now to do that. So it just so happens that I think that there are lots of opportunities out there because there are a lot of people working on some very interesting things, beginning to speak in very interesting ways. And I think we can, we can tie some of these together. So the first thing that I, let me share my screen here. Uh, do me a favor and like the stream. If you're watching this live, we're streaming on YouTube and on Facebook and on Twitter, like the stream, subscribe, follow, do all those good things on Twitter at real King Pilled. Um, we also can accept super chat. So if you guys want to, want to throw some, uh, throw some cash our way there, um, helps us keep the lights on, helps us keep doing this and, uh, makes us like you better. So <clears throat> this was, I think I mentioned this on one of the last streams, but there was this, this thing called Gundo that I saw on Twitter last week. Kept seeing people talk about Gundo. I'm like, what the hell is Gundo? Uh, and this is, I think one of the first videos that I saw on it. This guy, Joshua Steinman, who I'd recommend you guys go follow. He's a very interesting follow, very optimistic. Uh, part of this uh, effective accelerationism is is kind of EAC or American flag ACK is kind of the uh, um, the indicator that people are putting in their profiles and stuff as they talk about this. I'm going to do a deeper dive on EAC and techno-optimism and some of those things. Um, I need to prepare some more materials before I get into that. But this, this stream is going to kind of lay the groundwork for that. So... I mean, the vibes here are just immaculate. The I don't know where the volume's at. I don't want to blow your guys' ears out. So it's only a six-second video of, of this guy singing. But look at this. bunch of young white guys who are in like a party bus. This is, this is associated with Gundo. So I'm trying to get a feel for the vibe. 
live look at the Gundo crew heading up to San Francisco right now. Again, these are the the aesthetics here are are top notch. Uh, Catherine Boyle, this is a name to keep track of. We're going to talk about her in just a minute. Check this guy out, Augustus Dorico. I don't know exactly how I pronounce his last name, so apologies to him if I'm mispronouncing it. When inevitably, of course, he's going to watch this, you know. Um, Augustus Dorico, he's going to be mentioned in one of the things I'm about to read. Rainmaker is the thing that he's a part of. We're going to find out more about that here in a minute. But check out these vibes. Look at this. Just like my son, he's got an epic mullet, blonde hair, looking very Chad-like. This is this this is a vibe. This is a whole this is a whole vibe here. You got the the meme here with him in the in the the jean jacket with the mullet with an American flag behind him. Like this is I'm liking this. I'm liking this vibe. So then I started seeing screenshots from a Washington Post article talking about Gundo, and that's what that's what set me off on all this. Uh, this is another guy. If you want to, if you want to track some of the stuff that I'm, I'm, I'm looking at. You want to be able to look at the same things ahead of me. Um, there's a, there's a, a list that I've been curating on Twitter. Um, I shared the list with Pete Quinones, and he went and subscribed to all these people and, and, and turned on notifications just so he could start getting a feel for what they're talking about. What's their tone? What are their talking points? What are the things catching their, catching their, 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 their view? Uh, one of these guys is based Beth Jesus. <clears throat> when we talk about. Um, effective accelerationism or EAC later on, uh, he's definitely going to be a central character in that. Um, so he's another guy you should follow. Uh, I think I'll take that list and I'll put it, I'll, I don't, I'll throw it in the, in the King Pilt supporting listeners group. Once I put the whole list together and you can go subscribe, like follow the list so you can see all these people on Twitter. Uh, so subscribe store.com slash King That'll get you in there. It's only 10 bucks for right now. Um, and I'll post that in there. Uh, all right. So more Gundo stuff. This is this is the the thing that I was picking up on. This guy says I spent today in Gundo for the El Segundo Tech Hackathon. The event took on a life of its own, so I drove 20 minutes down the road to see the action. Hundreds of engineers and investors on a holiday weekend building dozens of crazy projects. Been said before, the kids are all right. So, bunch of white guys, bunch of young 20s and 30s white guys in some kind of a basement here. They got their caffeine. They all this this is just this is just a whole vibe here. Some big names, Founders Fund, 8VC. A uh, couple of these are are major uh, PayPal mafia. This is like direct connections to Peter Thiel um, and a number of other other uh, VC firms here associated with Gundo. Here they all are. They've got the uh, the U.S. Army flag, the U.S. Air Force flag, the Navy flag. So there's there's military vibes to this. All right. So let's go first of all. Before we get more into Gundo, I want to give you guys a, a backdrop to it. Now that you guys are kind of starting to get the vibe. This, let me check my time. Okay. So this is a transcript from a speech that was given by Catherine Boyle. I mentioned her a little, a little bit ago. The title of the speech is How to Win the Fight for America. Doomsayers, technophobes, and neurotics want to undermine America from the inside. Our dynamic vision must prevail, writes Catherine Boyle. It was... It's a transcript of, of her speech. Two-Bit Podcast says, this is how social memetics works. Yes, exactly. We're seeing a social contagion beginning to develop, and it's a very contagious contagion. All right. So I'll post the, uh, the, the link to this video um, so you can watch the video version of it. 
um, and kind of get a feel a feel for her delivery. I'll post that in the uh, um, in the description afterwards. <clears throat> so reading now, this is what she says. Two years ago, I made a bold prediction, which is actually a bad thing for a venture capitalist to do because we're so often wrong. During the Reagan National Defense Forum, I tweeted, time is running out with Silicon Valley. We needed to figure out how to get the Department of Defense to transform its laborious, unproductive procurement process. If they didn't, startup companies with breakthrough ideas were going to abandon military defense and move to more fruitful areas of technology. We had to move faster. We had to act with urgency because American defense and the defense of our allies depended on us. And then just a few months later, that prediction became a moot point. Russia invaded Ukraine and reminded us why defense technology is not merely something to debate in theory. We were living in a new geopolitical reality. Time wasn't running out. The sand was at the bottom of the hourglass. History had begun again, and we understood we were entering a new violent age that would look different from the recent past. In that narrow window before the world changed, I also wrote a thesis for a new category of technology company. At the time, this felt somewhat controversial, maybe even a little shocking to my friends in San Francisco. In the essay, I stated that my firm, Andreessen Horowitz, so she's a general partner for Andreessen Horowitz. I should have mentioned that to begin with. So, so Andreessen Horowitz, one of the biggest VC firms in Silicon Valley. Um, Mark Andreessen, a self-described techno-optimist. She's a general partner for the firm. In the essay, I stated that my firm, Andreessen Horowitz, one of the largest venture capital firms in the world, was unabashedly and proudly declaring its unanimous support for America, that we were betting on America, and that this wasn't a marketing gimmick or some ESG-adjacent nonsense, but a strategy. We're in the business of value creation, of taking bets on things that get very big very fast. We concluded that America and our allies are best off when we're building technology companies that support the national interest. National interest is an interesting phrase to use here. You don't see phrases like the national interest used very often uh, with the existing regime, in large part because nationalism is a big boogeyman, and this is a little too close to that. We believe a strong America means a strong world, a safer world, a more civilized world, which is a term we should use more. Apparently, she's been listening to Jason at the 2-Bit Podcast. And that technology is the backbone of maintaining this order and civilization and always will be. We call this movement American Dynamism. How's that for a name? I used it in the title of this show. That's where I got it. American Dynamism. This is not the language that you would associate with the U.S. regime for a long time. The whole, like, make America great again, little lit their hair on fire. American dynamism is very close to that. This is, this is militaristic language. This is American patriotism language. In the investing business, it's all about calibrating risk and sometimes taking bets that others don't see. But this bet was and is so obvious. It might have just taken a little bit of moral courage to say the word America out loud. But others have said it. The great investors will tell you one of the few certainties of the last 150 years has been the growth and dynamism of the United States. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger at their recent annual meeting in Omaha repeatedly reminded their investors never bet against America. Buffett reminded the crowd that a young country like ours started out with half of 1% of the world's population. And just 247 years later, here we are commanding 25% of the world's GDP. A miracle, he called it. That's an oddly religious phrase for an investor, but an accurate one. Jamie Dimon prefers a poker analogy, that America has the best hand ever dealt to any country on this planet ever. I think it's very interesting that she name drops Jamie Dimon. Uh, for more on that, go listen to Phil Gibson and the QPO, QPOL podcast. <clears throat> 
Whether it's our geography, our universities, our peaceful neighbors, our natural resources, the rule of law, our work ethic, innovation in the core of our bones, the widest and deepest financial markets, and the best military on the planet. We will have this last item, he said, for as long as we have the best economy. America is destined to win. So why are we starting to fear that this miracle is now on shaky ground? Why do we sense we're encountering the greatest global unrest since the Cold War, that we've entered the most precarious moment in our lives? So this is this is not something that's just restricted to Spurgs on right-wing Twitter. This sense of precariousness, this instability, everybody can sense it. The VC people in particular, because they're very tapped into all of these, all of these dynamics. And you're seeing this is this is not a globalist message. This is ex explicitly anti-globalist. This is distinctly nationalistic. Because deep down, we know how you win a war against America. You win a war against America when we stop innovating, when we become scared of technology and the drive that resides deep in our bones, when we cease to be the world's exporter of innovation and cede that role to China or to global consortiums of dunces. There you go. There's a shot at Davos. You win a war against America when you greet builders with suspicion, when your instinct is to destroy the weirdos doing new things on the frontier. You win a war against America when old companies become too big to fail and you ensure that the little ones around them are squashed instead. When we trust age more than we trust vitality, when everything is old, from our infrastructure to our industrial base to our political leaders, because we've conquered and discouraged the new. You can almost imagine Trump giving this speech. It wouldn't be quite, quite this well uh, uh, scripted. It'd be a lot more uh, parenthetical thoughts, but you could almost imagine Trump giving this speech. You win a war against America when our identities become more important than our duties to each other. There's a very post-libertarian vibe to this. When we turn inward and focus on our neuroses rather than on the needs of our families and our communities. Around 50 years ago, sociologist Philip Reef called modern man psychological man and the triumph of the therapeutic, noting that psychological man, quote, is likely going nowhere but aims to achieve a certain speed and certainty in his going. In 50 years, our new neuroticism is now a meme that mocks men who would rather build things and do things than go to therapy, an ethos we used to celebrate in this country. So this is a, uh, a message against the longhouse. You win a war against America when we believe the doomer means and stop thinking life has meaning at all, when our faith in everything is broken. A recent Wall Street Journal poll found that faith, family, and the flag, the very things that used to define our national character, have eroded in the last 25 years. Less than 30% of people say patriotism is important to them, down from 70% two decades ago. Religion, having children, and community fared the same. You win the war against America when it's nihilism all the way down. You win a war against America when our great cities are ruled by crime rings, when businesses are shuttered because security is meaningless theater, when our police are derided, when good people are driven out by bad policy. Sounds like she's describing the San Francisco government. You win a war against America when fentanyl pours across our borders, manufactured by an adversary that still remembers the opium wars and delivered by cartels that have no respect for human life. 100,000 of our countrymen and women are dead every year in a silent epidemic that's being met with a collective shrug. You win a war against America with toys like TikTok that give our adversaries direct access to the anxious minds of teenagers. You win a war against America when you invest billions of dollars in the CCP's tech ecosystem and pretend that's just the way business works. You win a war against America when you have us both sides in terrorism, when nuance and it's complicated gets in the way of condemning barbaric enemies who slaughter children in their bedrooms as they plead for mercy. 
you win a war against America when we no longer believe in good and evil, civilization and destruction, just fine people on both sides. Now, that's interesting, interesting phraseology there. It seems pretty clear to me, reading between the lines, that when she's talking about barbaric enemies who slaughter children in their bedrooms as they plead for mercy, this is a reference to Russia and Ukraine and uh, Gaza or, or Hamas uh, with respect to Israel. So that's one thing that I think this is going to be one of the biggest hangups for people recognizing how these people are genuinely outsiders to the regime because they're pro-Israel and anti-Russia. This is pretty consistent throughout a lot of the um, the broader Silicon Valley PayPal mafia people that I'm listening to. But it's in a different sense than the regime. The regime is anti-them because it, the, the regime is anti-Russia and pro-Israel because they're hostile to Americans. These people are anti-Russia and pro-Israel and they're pro-Americans. It may seem like a semantic difference, but this is a significant difference. These are not Zionists. These are people who believe that Israel is an ally and they want to be allied with Israel, which I have, I have my issues with, obviously. But that doesn't make them an enemy. They're vastly more of an enemy to the regime than they would ever be with us. You win a war against America when many in our media and universities seem more aligned with the propaganda of Hamas than the interests of this country. When we forget about hostages because the news cycle thundered to some other current thing. You win a war against America when the debate is no longer about security versus privacy, but our modern and more dangerous debate of security versus grievance. You win a war against America when you can no longer speak freely in the land of free speech. When we consume more than we create. When we attack capitalism, the engine of our growth, as though we don't deserve and shouldn't celebrate the fruits of our building. You win this war against America silently, methodically, and without firing a single shot. But the good news is we know how to fight back. And we're here because we heard the call to build against these dark forces we face. We know technology is the escape hatch from a nihilistic world. Eh, not really. I know where she's coming from. That democracy demands a sword, and sometimes we use it to defend ourselves, our allies, and civilization. Some have been critical that we named this movement American Dynamism, but I'll tell you, never have two words in the investing community meant so much and stood for real civilizational truth. We often focus on America, the obvious beneficiary of our building. American was meant not only as a symbol of what we build for, but the unseriousness we reject, a global elite that would be so foolish as to have Iran chair a UN Human Rights Forum. America is order, the order we want, the order our allies want, and we shouldn't be afraid to say that. But even more important than our choosing the word America is the word dynamism, the teleological end of technological supremacy. We aren't American defense or defense tech or hard tech or deep tech or military tech. Those are means to the end we aspire to. But what is that end? Dynamism is growth, movement, momentum, and opportunity. In his Techno-Optimist techno Manifesto, Mark Andreessen wrote, We believe everything good is downstream of growth. We believe not growing is stagnation, which leads to zero-sum thinking, internal fighting, degradation, collapse, and ultimately death. Dynamism is life, and we embrace dynamism and the values upon which the country was founded because they are true and worth defending. Dynamism makes America the country people want to be from, to immigrate to, and to build a life, career, or company in. Alexis de Tocqueville described America as many things, but he was struck by the insatiable spirit of American dynamism and opportunity. Quoting from de Tocqueville, 
The American Lodge is a noble and praiseworthy ambition, what our forefathers stigmatized as servile cupidity. In America, fortunes are lost and regained without difficulty. The country is boundless and its resources inexhaustible. Boldness of enterprise is the foremost cause of its rapid progress, its strength, and its greatness. Commercial business is there like a vast lottery by which a small number of men will continually lose, but the state is always a gainer. Close quote. <clears throat> the state is always a gainer. America always wins. So how do we ensure we continue building dynamism? How do we win a slow and methodical silent war? Well, it takes will and takes courage. Every day I talk to smart young people who want to work in tech or become founders, and I ask them a simple and obvious question, one that should be instinctual to answer, not about their revenue goals or their product or how they're going to scale a team from five to 50, but a more essential question. What do you believe? Why will people follow you? I might as well ask, what is your creed? What will you shout from the rooftops, even if you're maligned for it? We don't win a war against bad ideologies unless we know who we are, what we stand for, and where we're headed. And if we lose this silent war, the ultimate war for American ideals, it's not because we don't have the know-how to build missiles and hypersonics and attributable systems and drone swarms. It will be because we doubt our inheritance, because we doubt the beauty and nobility of what we're building, because we doubt that American dynamism is true and the key to a safer, more prosperous civilization. So that is the first thing. And I wanted to highlight, I saw a, a comment here. Where was it? I highlighted it in my head to come back to, oh yeah, Sanji said, sounds like classical propaganda. Yes, exactly. This is propaganda. This is purely 100% of political propaganda speech given in the venture capital context. But what stands out to me is the type of propaganda. This is a very different class of propaganda than anything that we've seen recently with the exception of aspects of Trump and Vivek. So this is someone, a Silicon Valley insider speaking to Silicon Valley people. Obviously she's not doing this because she thinks she's a lone voice crying in the wilderness. She definitely recognizes that there's opposing forces, but she's also preaching to the choir to an extent. And this has become a significant speech. A lot of people have rallied around this speech. So again, what I'm describing to you is not, she's the answer. What she's describing is, is the secret to cure, cure all of our ills. What I'm describing to you is what's happening, the types of rhetoric people are rallying around and what sort of political movement and what sort of uh, implications that has for things moving forward. It's giving you a, a peek into the mind of very wealthy, very powerful people who are now coming out and saying things in the Silicon Valley context that 100% could not and would not have been said just a few years ago, which lends credence to the notion that Silicon Valley is not a place completely overrun by the school marm blue hairs. They've, they've held it hostage for a while. But now that's starting to have legitimate real-world costs. And so the people with means are beginning to push back. And they're pushing back substantially. Uh, yeah, Ryan Isaac, a vibe shift. <clears throat> uh, okay, so i got about 20 minutes left here. So this should, this should work to get this other one in. Let me share the screen. All right, so the title of this one, How Silicon Valley Learned to Love America, Drones, and Glory. 
After a decade of building the future, tech's new guard is going back to the American past, spurring a funding frenzy in defense technology. So I want you to notice not just the substance of what, what's being talked about in here, but the tone of how it's being described. Note what is there and what isn't there. Understanding this is coming from Democracy Dies in Darkness, The Washington Post. Look at the, the characteristics of the people they're talking about and the way that they're talking about them. Hundreds of bright young technologists have landed in California this weekend for a two-day hackathon, a quintessential startup contest in which teams of coders race to build software. But rather than a posh snack laid in San Francisco office, they'll work in a cavernous 6,000-square-foot warehouse in El Segundo, a refinery town southwest of Los Angeles. And instead of building mobile apps or AI chatbots, competitors will hack together surveillance tools, electronic warfare systems, or drone countermeasures for the front lines in Ukraine. Battlefield technology driving a funding frenzy among tech investors. Build hard tech for the defense of the West, a hackathon judge wrote on X, encouraging applicants. Defense, drones, gundo, an organizer wrote, using the city's nickname to promote the event. Let me real quick show you the, the vibe of these guys who are posting this. So this is the guy who said, if you're interested in building hard tech for the defense of the West, you should sign up. If you want to see more defense tech companies, you should sponsor this event. I'll be there as a judge doing my best to help teams think through tech and approach. So this is Andrew Cote, uh, engineering physicist, scout for Andreessen Horowitz, deep tech, physics, energy, and sci-fi. Kind of get a bit of a vibe for this guy. <clears throat> Let's go back. Let's open this other one. Oh, this one's gone. All right. They must have deleted it. Oh, well. We'll go back to the piece. <clears throat> Until recently, tech workers have bristled at applying the fast and nimble startup ethos to fashion deadly weapons. When Google signed a Pentagon contract to develop AI to target drone strikes, thousands petitioned its CEO in 2018 to cancel it. Such protests spread during the Trump administration with workers railing against plans to sell augmented reality headsets to U.S. troops and facial recognition tools to immigration officials at the U.S.-Mexico border. But after a decade of pushing a utopian vision to the future, tech's most optimistic pitch is a return to America's past. Connecting the world is out. Rearming the arsenal of democracy is in. So no more globalism. Time for nationalism. <clears throat> Between 2021 and 2023, investors funneled, funneled $108 billion into defense tech companies, building a range of cutting-edge tools, including hypersonic missiles, performance-enhancing wearables, and satellite surveillance systems, according to the data firm PitchBook, which predicts the defense tech market will surge to $184.7 billion by 2027. Skepticism against defense work has faded for younger generations raised on the tumult of foreign wars, a financial crisis, and the rising threat of science. Uh, the rising, <laughs> rising threat of China, said hackathon organizer Rasmus Day Meyer, a 20-year-old junior at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. So a 20-year-old named Rasmus Day Meyer. How's that for a vibe? <laughs> In the world's fragile state, Day Meyer said, it's a lot more socially acceptable to be unabashedly patriotic in the national interest. To some among this new crop of tech workers and startup founders, defense contracting is a higher calling to extend American ideals into the next century. This group of mostly men believes in hard work, real innovation, and family values. They're eager to accelerate progress for America, and a growing number of investors can't wait to back them. Uh, well, let me open these pictures up. You can kind of you can see this again. There's a whole bunch of young white guys here. 
There's a whole bunch of young white guys here. This is a whole vibe. This is, this is, uh, uh, you, you should be able, if you've been on the internet long enough, you should be able to tell who these guys are. It's very clear who these guys are. <clears throat> At least three dozen funds are dedicated to the market. According to the Defense Investor Network, investing in newly coined sectors such as defense tech, deep tech, hard tech, and space tech. Most have militaristic branding, like Andreessen Horowitz's American Dynamism Fund, General Catalyst's Global Resilience Fund, and Shield Capital's Frontier Technologies Fund, which boasts the motto, Mission Matters. On Wednesday, the prominent startup incubator Y Combinator announced a new fund dedicated to, to defense, space, and robotics. And I happen to know the CEO of Y Combinator, Gary Tan, is very much not a, uh, a regime loyalist, so to speak. It's very much part of the the crew of guys I would consider the the broader PayPal mafia network who are absolutely extremely dissatisfied with the existing regime. They want nothing to do with DEI, ESG, uh, unrestricted immigration, big China hawks, uh, fed up with anarcho-tyranny, even explicitly calling it anarcho-tyranny. This is the mentality of these guys. So here comes a familiar name. This public embrace of nationalism marks a massive shift in Silicon Valley, where values have long been out of step with the rest of the country. Founders Fund partner Trey Stevens said. The firm's founder, dot, dot, da, Peter Thiel, told Stevens in 2014 to locate companies building technology to protect American interests that could be sold to the Department of Defense. In three years, Stevens, whom Thiel had recruited from the CIA-backed data mining startup Palantir, says he only found one company. Now there are dozens, including at least seven unicorns valued at more than $1 billion. Lobbying budgets have likewise expanded from VC firms along with companies like Anduril, which Stevens co-founded, Shield AI, and Skydio. This cultural shift has been spurred by a growing unease in tech circles as economic and geopolitical threats collide. Rising interest rates, fragility in the global supply chain, and China's rapid militarization have led to fears that the United States, and perhaps the industry itself, is vulnerable. And then they quote from uh, Catherine Boyle's speech that I just read you guys. I'm going to kind of hurry this up because I want to get done in time. Ukraine's ramped up use of drones prompted the Pentagon to make its notoriously arduous procurement process more hospitable to tech startups, launching initiatives like federally guaranteed loans for investors to fund technology deemed critical to national security, improvements that arrived as capital for venture funds was drying up. As the bubble deflated and startup valuations shrank, everyone panicked, said Michael Dempsey, managing partner of the venture firm Compound. Some developers wondered if they had wasted their time shuffling around software. This period of searching and self-doubt presented an opening for venture firms to declare defense tech the next big thing. Even now, he said, investors lack conviction about where to focus. It's like, is it crypto? Is it climate? Is it AI? Is it American dynamism? Amid layoffs in tech, the latter has grown appealing. In a morning consult survey of 441 tech workers last March, 34% said they are more likely than they were a year ago to apply their skills to military projects, and 48% support their employers considering defense contracts involving battlefield technologies. The vibe is shifting. When everything is up and to the right, you don't have to do the hardest thing to make money, Stephen said, but it's not the money printer moment anymore. Tying back into um, our, our, our good old boy white hat Jerome Powell. The Silicon Valley Industrial Complex. Tech's military ties predate Silicon Valley, which began in the late 1950s when funding from defense and intelligence agencies transformed a strut of fruit orchards into production grounds for mainframes and microprocessors. 
Those relationships dwindled during the internet era, then slowly resumed after 9-11, Margaret O'Mara writes in her 2019 book, The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. Palantir, co-founded by Teal, was one such company formed during the War on Terror, with backing from the CIA's venture firm, Incutel. To keep up with the threat of stateless terrorist networks, the defense establishment reversed its Cold War pipeline, turning to private industry rather than government-funded labs. The Pentagon launched VC firms and sponsored hackathons to build commercial tech that could eventually be sold for military use. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, efforts have escalated. The head of the Defense Department appointed a longtime deputy of Apple CEO Tim Cook to direct the Defense Innovation Unit, a division whose aim is to fast-track commercial tech for national security, a role reporting directly to Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. In August, the Pentagon unveiled a replicator program which will rapidly build and field thousands of drones in two years or less. The Israel-Gaza war has amplified divisions among workers, with more than 500 Google employees protesting the company's $1.2 billion contract with the Israeli government in December. Still, the overarching message from elites in both D.C. and Silicon Valley is techno-optimism, said Jack Murphy, (laughs) an Army Special Operations veteran and former Army Ranger turned investigative journalist. We think there is a technological solution to everything, he said. Are we losing sight of the reality of what AI will probably do on the battlefield? Now, obviously, I would disagree with the idea that there's a technological solution to everything. Um, But, you know, I also am not going to waste my time trying to argue with the guy. (laughs) It's just, yeah, there's no point. But rather than out of touch, some tech investors present this work as a chance to return to mid-century American values. Faith, family, and the flag, the very things that used to define our national character, have eroded, Boyle said in her speech at the Defense Summit, which has become a clarion call for financiers and founders. You win the war against America when it's nihilism all the way down. Again, I don't care what someone's priors are if they are identifying nihilism as the problem and they want to counter-signal nihilism. Accelerate, young man. The clarion call from El Segundo, where the hackathon will take place, is less formal. The city, located between a Chevron refinery, a sewage plant, and the Los Angeles International Airport, was once home to contractors building parts for planes, rockets, and missiles. Then, in, in 2002, SpaceX set up shop. Now it's a haven for a growing scene of deadlifting, nicotine gum chewing, energy drink chugging founders of space, energy, and drone startups seeking to bring cool back to American manufacturing. This is where it starts getting really interesting. So notice the way that that they're being like deadlifting, nicotine gum chewing, energy drinking, energy drink chugging founders seeking to bring cool back to American manufacturing. Not a single mention of make America great again. Not a single mention of far right ties. Not a single mention of uh, anything that would that the the regime press would typically be ripping their hair out about. Listen to how. The authors continue to describe them. Augustus Dorico, the 23-year-old founder of Rainmaker, a startup that aims to alleviate water scarcity by seeding clouds with minerals, called the local tech community a cultural project that rejects the engineering culture prized in San Francisco. There, one can make a million dollars without doing much work or adding any value to the world. Dorico, who sports a hipster mullet, Nike high tops, and a casual swagger, an aesthetic he refers to as Americana, looks to eras of great technological progress, like the Enlightenment, the Gilded Age, and the 1960s to capture the feeling that, quote, it was an aspirational and honorable thing to be an inventor and a creator and a builder. We've got a 23-year-old young man in a hipster mullet, Nike high tops, and a casual swagger, referring to it as Americana and proclaiming the value and honor of being an inventor, a creator, and a builder. 
This is, this is a vibe shift. Software developers seeking a jolt of energy have been so keen to visit that Dorico put up bunk beds at Rainmaker's headquarters to, quote, house pilgrims to the gundo, he said. Believers evangelize online as well with social media bios like, ask me why consuming energy is good and you should have more babies, and share hustle and ground, grind mottos that can sound closer to religious hymnals or military slogans. Good morning, the world definitely needs you to build wrote one anonymous poster on X, formerly Twitter, using the abbreviation for Good Morning favored by crypto insiders. Some reject the previous tech era, in particular the protests against Project Maven, Google's work to target Pentagon drones. This worker dissent ultimately benefited America's adversaries, former Google researcher Guillaume Verdon said in a recent podcast interview with Joe Lonsdale, a Palantir co-founder and tech investor. I remember I mentioned based Beth Jesus before. That's who Guillaume is. Guillaume is based Beth Jesus. His podcast with Joe Lonsdale is very good. You should go listen to it. It's the the Joe, it's Joe Lonsdale's podcast called American Optimism, I believe. Joe Lonsdale is another guy that we're going to talk about more in the future. I've been watching a bunch of his interviews lately, and they are absolutely loaded with signal. Uh, I forgot I was going to going to shout out again Jason from the Two Bit Podcast with his prediction of the neo trads coming back into into uh, into fashion. That's what you're seeing here with Dorico, talking about Americana, talking about the Enlightenment, the Gilded Age, the 1960s, it being aspirational to be an inventor. You've got pronatalism. You've got uh, uh, hustle and grind mottos that can sound closer to re religious hymnals or military slogans. This is all, this is the neo-trads coming back exactly the way that, that Jason predicted. So back to Verdon. What I saw with my own eyes was cultural subversion within big tech, Verdon said. The issue has led him to help create a philosophy called Effective Accelerationism, or EAC, which advocates supercharging technological progress through unbridled capitalism. The mantra has become popular in the defense tech world, where some adopt the EAC monitor, a moniker, occasionally replacing the E with an American flag emoji. Others in the field see their work as preventing conflict. The neoconservative warmongers of the past is not something I endorse, Dorico said. Defense is good, but war is still bad. Now, they have to get their token um, people who see this as problematic reference here. So Kat Hendrickson eschewed big tech jobs after finishing a PhD in mechanical and aerospace engineering in 2022. She wanted to see her research tackle real problems and conflict zones. Still, Hendrickson, a technical director working on fleets of autonomous drones at Episci, a Poe, California-based startup, said the word patriotism makes her freeze up, especially as it has become really co-opted by the far right, she said. While the war in Ukraine made it easier to explain her job to friends and family, the war in Gaza stirred a lot of internal debate, Hendrickson said. Looking at Ukraine, a front line of troops, those are your targets, Hendrickson said. If you're looking at Gaza from an Israeli perspective, you're bombing a city. It's just totally different. She and her team discuss safeguards they can put in place if their products are later resold and abused, intentionally or not. I always tell my team that I hope we're all a little bit uncomfortable. Meanwhile, Day Meyer and his hackathon co-organizers are focused on building the pipeline of young talent. Yeah, these guys don't, don't give a shit. They're, they're focused on building. <laughs> their organization, Apollo Defense, aims to funnel undergraduates toward creating their own defense tech startups or working for one. This deep sense of uncertainty about the future that young people have can be molded, Day Meyer said. We have agency in shaping that future. And the way that we shape that future is by building the best possible arsenal to make sure that war never happens. So how is that for a vibe? This is this is just I, if you don't see how drastically different this is, then I don't know what to tell you. 
Now, there's a lot of implications to this that I don't have time to get into today. We're going to do some more conversations on this, on this in the future. I'm sure that I'm going to end up talking about this with Simeagog and with Academic Agent at the very least. Um, so I see there's 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 protests and objections happening in the comments. I'm sorry I can't really address them this time, guys, but I've got to get ready for this other interview. I wanted to push this out so you guys could see this particular thing, and you could start pulling on that thread yourself if you'd like. Um, I'll also probably be tweeting about this a little bit later, so you guys could catch me on Twitter at RealKingPilled. And uh, a super chat here from random username, $20. Thank you, man. He said, this meme spirit, this managed democracy and greatness through force is directly tied to Helldivers 2. No other game has served as an allegory for recruitment, like the arcade in the film, The Last Starfighter. I keep hearing about this uh, this Helldivers 2 thing, so I'm going to have to look into that. There's um, there's definitely a, a trend coming in the in the art here very much a there's a militarism that's building and there's a number of different reasons for that um i know people have their their theories about why that is uh academic agent in particular and his his channel they've talked a lot about their the he has his bet with oren mcintyre about putting the woke away what that's going to look like what that's going to mean and uh and uh yeah so i'd like to debate this more now but i've got to get prepared for this interview i appreciate you guys thank you for showing up uh, right now, there are 52 concurrent viewers and 25 likes. Do me a favor, guys. Get those likes up. Get those likes up. <clears throat> you can use it. I appreciate it. Uh, TG3221Chi says, we really love you, Matt, but man, these guys really got you. It's a kind of reverse psychology. Yeah, see, apparently the entire entire uh, uh, disclaimer that I put at the beginning just, just went right over your head. The Yeah, I... I I'd like to talk about the implications of this. I've got to get over to, to um, prepare for this other interview. So um, we'll talk about this more on one of the next shows. I appreciate you guys. Thank you for showing up for this. And uh, I'll see you around.